This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, the economy, and the environment. It's not the job of the EPA, the authority of the EPA, to pick winners and losers between the different fuel sources. Andrew Wheeler was recently confirmed by the U.S. Senate as administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I think it's important to make sure that we have a balance of fuel sources in order to make sure that we have electric power for everyone across the country. But again, that's not the role of the EPA. Our job is to set the regulations that govern the industry. But some companies aren't waiting on action from the federal government. We're doing the innovation, we're doing the work on figuring out how to sort out the CO2. But in the meantime, we will really make a commitment on energy efficiency. These markets are moving already, but it's really about accelerating and moving the pace on. EPA Chief Andrew Wheeler and more, up next on Climate One. Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. I recently attended a conference on the future of personal mobility organized by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. I sat down with US EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler and other leaders to discuss how people will get around in a hot and crowded world. Administrator Wheeler, thanks for coming to Climate One. Absolutely, thanks for having me. During your Senate confirmation testimony, you said that climate change is not the greatest risk facing humanity, but it's somewhere around a eight or nine on the scale of 10. So what is the Trump administration doing to address that eight or nine um, challenge for humanity? Sure. Um, we're moving forward with our ACE proposal, the Affordable Clean Energy Act, which will reduce CO2 from the electric power segment. Um, we're also moving forward with our CAFE standard, which will also reduce CO2. On, you know, on the ACE proposal, um, it's projected to get 33 to 34% reduction in CO2 from the electric power sector over the, over the life of the regulation. Though I think there was a Harvard study that, that questioned whether that uh, will really reduce CO2 compared to the Obama Clean Power Plan, which I think that's trying to replace. Well, you got to remember, though, the Obama Clean Power Plan never took effect. It was mm -hmm. stayed by the Supreme Court because, in my opinion, it went outside the Clean Air Act. So it's really hard to, to compare apples and oranges when you have a regulation that is was never implemented outside the jurisdiction of the, of the agency and the, outside the authority of the Clean Air Act versus a proposed regulation that follows the law, follows the Supreme Court precedents, and will reduce CO2. So a lot of the, this was really about coal. Coal production, coal capacity in the United States is about, down about a third from 2010. Uh, banks, insurance companies, hedge funds are all moving away from coal, as you well know. What is the you know? Do you really think that that easing regulations on coal will help bring back an industry that's in decline for lots of reasons? Well, I think the important thing here is that we're not tipping the scales. The Obama administration tipped the scales away from coal. It's not the job of the EPA, the authority of the EPA, to pick winners and losers between the different fuel sources. And that would be either Department of Energy or FERC or even you know, more likely the state PUCs. Our job is to set the regulations that govern the industry. And, and that's what we're doing. And, it's, and we believe we have a responsible regulation that will reduce CO2 from the electric power segment um, and following both the Clean Air Act and the Massachusetts versus EPA decision. Though there was an effort to require uh, utilities to stockpile a bunch of coal, which was even the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission didn't didn't go there. That seems like a, a pretty clear effort to to help coal by requiring power plants to, to stockpile coal. 
Well, you know, that, that is outside the authority of the EPA. And I know the Department of Energy and, and FERC were looking into those issues. I do think, you know, as far as their authorities are concerned, I, I think it's important to make sure that we have a balance of fuel um, sources in order to make sure that we have electric power for everyone across the country. But again, that's not the role of the EPA. And under the Obama administration, um, the EPA really took that on as their role, which is not what the EPA was set up to do. Some people said to me that it's really Texas frackers that hurt coal because it's cheap natural gas that hurt coal more than the Sierra Club or Obama. Do you think so? there's some truth in that, that Texas frackers really hurt there, coal? More there than might anyone? be some truth to that. But, you know, if you have a coal-fired power plant and you're trying to make a decision whether or not to put on additional um, equipment or shut it down, um, that's a big driver for the future of coal. I, I don't think you're going to look at, oh, natural gas is cheap, so I'm going to go ahead and shut down a functioning um, coal-fired power plant just because natural gas is cheap. Look, coal-fired generation in the U.S. is increasingly uneconomic. Cheap natural gas is undercutting coal in U.S. power markets. Moments after I sat down with Andrew Wheeler, I talked with Albert Chung, head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. What's happening is uh, with the advent of cheap natural gas and cheap renewables, um, it's driving power prices down. Um, and those power prices are increasingly not able um, to support the price of coal. So, you know, I think the current uh, administration are telling a narrative about environmental regulations and, and the idea that um, it's regulations that's killing the coal industry. Um, I think it's really hard to make that case. I think what we've seen um, over the last several years is really a story about new technologies coming in um, and providing power generation at a lower cost. We'll hear more from my conversation with Albert Chung later in the program. Right now, let's return to EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. We're here talking at a Bloomberg conference on mobility. A lot of talk about the California waiver, clean car standards. Um, California and the federal government are kind of a, at a deadlock there. How's that going to play out? Well, hopefully we can, we can end up with something, a, a regulation that the California likes and can agree with. Um, but, you know, California is only looking at it as one policy issue, and that is energy efficiency. The, the Trump administration, the federal government, were looking at more than just one policy issue, including highway safety, lives saved. Our proposal will save 1,000 lives per year, as opposed uh, over and above the Obama proposal. Is that because bigger cars? How, what's the basis for that? It's o older cars. You know, right now, cars are st people are keeping their cars longer because of the high price of cars. The average lifespan for a car on the, on the road, the average age of a car on the road today is 12 years. It used mm -hmm. to be eight years. People are holding onto their cars longer. When you buy a new car, you buy a more energy efficient car, you buy a safer car. And what we're trying to do with our cafe proposal is bring down the cost of a new car, which brings us down around $2,300 per car on average. And um, that will incentivize more people to buy newer, safer, more energy efficient cars. There's no factual support for that statement whatsoever. That's Mary Nichols, California's top air regulator. I also talked with her at the Bloomberg conference. She responds to Andrew Wheeler's contention that the Trump administration's effort to relax auto fuel efficiency rules will save lives. The administration tried to use the safety argument as an excuse for why they had to roll back on emissions and fuel economy. And since fuel economy improvements pretty obviously benefit consumers, um, they had to try to pin it on the, the initial cost of, of the vehicles. Uh, unfortunately, there just isn't any support for this argument. And in fact, um, it seems that the opposite is true. But from 
all of the uh, comments that have come into the record now as a result of the Trump administration putting out this argument as part of their proposal to roll back the standards, um, they're going to have a very hard time uh, surviving a challenge to that decision just because uh, it, the facts aren't there. We'll hear more from Mary Nichols in just a bit, but let's get back to EPA Chief Andrew Wheeler at the Bloomberg Conference on Mobility. Here at this conference, we've heard Audi and other companies touting about how there's going to be more EVs coming to market. And there was a poll taken at the audience here, and policy was a tiny part of what they thought would shape the future direction of the auto industry. The the top winners were really business models and consumer preferences. So it's not, according to this audience here, it's not policy driving the market. Well, the Obama administration tried to use policy to drive the market. We're not. We're, we are looking at, at the consumer um, data. We're looking at the same thing that the automobile manufacturers are looking at as far as what people want to buy. But what we're trying to do is set a standard that will um, save lives, bring down the cost of a new car. There's a lot of automakers who really like the idea of bringing down the cost of a new car, $2,300, and getting more new cars sold. They also have said that they don't want a rollback of the auto uh, emission standards. Uh, you know, Ford has come out and said that. Other, other auto companies have said, we want certainty. It's not good for industry, for the federal government and California to fight it out in court, and they don't know who's going to win. So w- what about the voice of industry here who's saying, hey, we want some clarity, which is what they always want? Well, industry came to us, began this administration and said that they can't meet the Obama standards going forward. Um, you know, and right now they're not. If you look at the 2016 data, they paid $77 million in penalties because they did not meet the 2016 Obama CAFE standard. And that amount is supposed to increase dramatically over the next 10 years. So how does this play out? Do you think they end up in court or is there going to be kind of a deal where the California gets the standards? California often drives national standards. That's been the history. True. And, you know, what we're looking at, though, is on the energy efficient CO2 side, we aren't taking away California's ability to set standards for the health based emissions from automobiles. That's very important. All we're looking at are the energy efficiency standards, not the health based standards. Um, California has driven um, development of standards over the years, but you know, we're trying to set a standard for the entire country. There's legislation in Congress now, you know, pricing carbon pollution is now on the table. Again, it hasn't been that way for, I don't know, about 10 years or so. There's something called the Carbon Dividend Plan that was co-authored by James Baker, George Schultz, and supported by one of your predecessors, Christine Todd Whitman, Rob Walton, the scion of the, mm-hmm. of the Walmart family, Ben Bernanke, also corporations, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Exelon, AT&T. This is, you know, the, the corporate and political establishment. What do you think of that plan? Well, if the goal of the plan is to set a carbon tax. Um, I, they call it a fee and dividend. Give money they, back to the people. Right. I, I've never seen a fee and dividend that actually um, actually gives 100 percent of the money back to the American public. Um, they say know, this would be carbon the first tax. <laughs> is the, one of the most regressive taxes you can put on the American public um, because lower-income people, people on a fixed income, end up paying more of, of a percentage of their income. Well, first of all, they pay more of a percentage of their income for energy today than people upper brackets. So it really does hurt lower-income people, people on a fixed budget. And it's not just, and I know they're talking about paying dividends back to people so right. they have a rebate for their gasoline or a rebate for their 
for their home heating and, and, and air conditioning, but what about the um, dividends to make up for the increased price on goods from the small businesses, from the restaurants they go to, from the local McDonald's, they're paying more for their electricity. So it's, it's a regressive form of taxation. I mean, maybe economically, um, one of the easier ways of addressing the CO2, but it's, it's, it's really harmful to low-income people. The backers say that most people, Americans would come out ahead. They would get more back from the plan than they, than they would paying forward, which is I why— I don't think they're looking at the indirect costs that people pay for energy costs. When it's increased prices on goods and services and what they paid, not just for their own heating and cooling bills or the, what they pay at the gas pump. And what is the way, if you say climate change is an eight or a nine, you know, I heard you talk about the, the clean, um, affordable clean energy plan. What are the other ways to tackle climate change? Because we're seeing storms, fires and deaths in California. Storms are more severe. Uh, you know, Houston, et cetera. It's getting very expensive. To well, it is a global issue. It's a global problem that needs to be addressed globally, but not through a mechanism such as the Paris Climate Accord, which is really unfair to the United States, United States um, manufacturers, United States citizens, compared to people who live in China or India or other countries. So if, if you're going to address it, it has to be done globally. But um, also equally important is looking at adaptation and making sure that when, when a natural disaster strikes, that we, re we rebuild in order to sustain a, a larger storm surge. Um, things like that are very important. Um, as far as the California fires, and this is a topic that I got into in my, in my confirmation, you know, the, the, I believe the unofficial name is the Little Hoover Institute here in California that mm -hmm. um, drafted the report based upon the, on the fires, and they blame the forest management practices of the last hundred years more than climate change. And I think, I, I think it's important not to lose sight of that aspect because we really do need to have better forest management. Um, in order to stop the, the wild, destructive fires that we've seen in recent years. There's forest management, but the, I've interviewed some of the firefighters who say that's, you know, high winds, hot temperatures, a lot of fuel, uh, low precipitation, lots of things kind of combined, right. no single but factor. But we can't say that this is just because of climate change, which a number of people try to do. Sure. Um, but would you say that it's amplified or turbocharged by, but not caused by, you know, like any one of Barry Bonds home how do, runs? How do you define turbocharged? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a factor. Right. We say here in San Francisco that we know that um, you can't attribute any one of Barry Bonds' home runs to uh, juicing, but we know that some <laughs> of those 750 uh, home runs wouldn't have happened uh, without steroids. <laughs> um, so last word in terms of, you know, going forward, do you feel a sense of urgency on climate change or is this something that technology will solve and we have time to, to work on? I have a lot of faith in technology. When I said at my hearing that climate change is not the biggest crisis we face worldwide on the environmental side, I think our biggest crisis is on water and potable water and the fact that we have a million children and people dying a year from lack of sanitary um, clean sa drinking water. Clean drinking water, right, exactly. I think that is a huge crisis. If we spend a fraction of what we're spending on climate change to provide those people with safe drinking water, we'd be saving a million lives a year. That is a crisis today. Andrew Wheeler, thanks for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Coming up, we'll hear more of my conversations with Albert Chung and Mary Nichols. Some people have predicted that the cost of EVs is going to fall dramatically, and they're making very bullish statements about the future of electric vehicles. 
I hope that they're correct. That's up next when Climate One continues. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One continues now with more of my interview with Mary Nichols. She's chair of the California Air Resources Board, a position she's held since Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger appointed her in 2007. I began by asking about the negotiations between California and 18 other states and the federal government over auto emission standards. The federal government, although they invited us several times to come to Washington to talk, has taken the position that we are just one stakeholder and therefore they couldn't possibly, uh, you know, just negotiate with us. The, the difficulty that the political appointees have is that President Trump uh, announced and uh, was quoted widely after he met with the auto executives telling uh, then uh, Administrator Pruitt and Secretary Chow from DOT that he wanted them to go and negotiate with um, California. So as with many things that happen with this administration, there appear to be two different narratives at least and maybe more about what's really going on. So where is this headed? Is it headed to a deal? Is it headed to court? Well, at the moment, I would have to say it's headed to court, just in the sense that we haven't seen any sign that the administration is planning to pull back from the very extreme proposal they put out. Um, Senator Harper from Delaware, who's the ranking Democrat in the Senate uh, on environment, uh, cited some information, which I believe he was privy to, that um, says that the new, uh, the final regulation when it comes out is not going to be for zero improvement. It's going to be something closer to half a percent a year as opposed to the 5% a year that was called for under the current rule. So that way they could say that they still had something of a regulation. It just won't be anything like what was originally on the books. Does the change from Jerry Brown to Governor Newsom have any impact on this poker game played with the Trump administration? Well, uh, inevitably, bringing in a new personality is going to have an impact. But so far, every indication I've seen is that the new governor, Governor Newsom, is, if anything, even more committed to um, maintaining California's cutting edge when it comes to clean technologies, advanced environmental principles. He is uh, steering us in the direction of uh, adding more effort to work with the transportation planners, with the cities, uh, land use authorities to try to um, focus on urban planning and to find ways to reduce the need to drive and the amount of driving in urban areas, including by building more housing in our urban areas. So he sees these issues as very much connected, which of course they are, but they tend to fall into different camps when it comes to different agencies. So I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more activity and, and frankly, interacting more with uh, colleagues in other parts of the administration on these issues. We're here at a conference where a lot of auto companies are present from Audi, uh, which you've busted, <laughs> and uh, 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 Porsche, et cetera. Uh, what, have you gathered, you know, they're saying that there's going to be, what, 50% EVs, something in, in 20 years. Um, what are you gathering from this auto audience here, automakers here today? Well, uh, 
some people, including Bloomberg uh, themselves, have predicted that the cost of EVs is going to fall dramatically, and they're making very, very bullish statements about the future of electric vehicles. I hope that they're correct. I don't think it's inevitable that this is going to happen, and I don't think the major obstacle is the car companies themselves. I think they are designing and producing very attractive uh, vehicles. There are really a couple of limiting factors. One is the batteries themselves. We still need breakthroughs in battery technology so that we can have a much longer-lived battery and more easily rechargeable and easily disposable. You know, there's, there's just going to have to be some uh, continuing improvement in the quality of the batteries. And then the other is in the uh, charging infrastructure that uh, people uh, don't uh, want to invest, at least in many instances, uh, unless they're pretty sure that they know where and how they're going to be able to charge. And people who uh, have you know, the ability to do that at home are certainly the first adopters, but that's not even half of the public that we need to be getting to. So um, finding ways not only to um, bring these cars uh, to communities where people tend to live in apartments, but also to figure out how they're going to charge at work, uh, how the services that uh, provide ride sharing, ride hailing, are going to become electric. These are all still uh, issues that need to be addressed. Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board. You're listening to Climate One and a series of conversations recorded at a recent conference on the future of personal mobility, organized by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Let's turn now to my conversation with Albert Chung, head of global analysis at Bloomberg's New Energy Unit. I began by asking Albert about an audience survey showing that consumers and technology, not policy, are driving the auto industry toward electric mobility. I think the drive uh, towards electric mobility is coming from a number of different directions. Um, I definitely think technology is a really important factor. Um, If you look at the cost of lithium-ion batteries, um, they've come down in price by 85% since 2010. That's a phenomenal cost reduction, and that's making electric vehicles more and more economic. In fact, there are many countries today where, on a total cost of ownership basis, it's actually better to own an EV um, already today. Regulation is also playing an important role. I I think what's really happening is the technology is changing, but regulation is creating the environment um, where companies can invest for the long term to develop that technology and, and drive change in the markets. Um, I would argue that on the consumer side, we've yet to really see whether consumers are really going to adopt electric vehicles on a mass market scale. Um, you know, we're hitting the, the low single digits of, of percentage in terms of sales being electric um, in most of the major mm-hmm. auto markets around the world. Um, and that's that's you know, I don't want to do that down. I think that's phenomenal growth over the last several years. But I think there is still a question mark about how consumers perceive electric vehicles. And I think the next few years are going to be really exciting um, as the number of electric vehicle models on the market increases to see just how quickly they get adopted. When will a person be able to go to an auto dealer online or at an auto mall and find an electric car at the same price as a gasoline car? So we reckon that by 2024 is when you'll start seeing electric vehicles on the market that are equivalently priced to an internal combustion engine vehicle. 
Um, and that's for, you know, your more expensive, um, you know, larger vehicles. And then in later years towards sort mm -hmm. of 2026, 28, um, you'll see electric vehicles being cost competitive on an upfront basis um, in essentially in every vehicle class in, in the US and Europe. And that's really exciting because that means that a consumer can walk into a showroom um, and they'll have the choice of an EV or an internal combustion engine vehicle um, and the EV will be cheaper. And that is when we'll really see uh, electric vehicles take off, in my opinion. We've seen Chinese imports into the United States and Europe for just about everything, not so much for automobiles yet, uh, but do you think there's going to be some, as an economy grows, you know, as, as Japan grew, as Korea grew, grew, we suddenly saw auto imports from those uh, developed countries. Uh, what about import of Chinese automobiles into the United States and what would that look like? I think the first thing to say about China is that it is a, it is really the powerhouse that's driving EV development globally at the moment. Um, you know, it's by far the biggest passenger EV market in the world today. You've got about 7% of all cars in China being sold in the last quarter of 2018 were electric. And pretty much all of the electric buses in the world are in China. It's something like 99% of the world's electric buses are in China. Now, because mm -hmm. of that, you know, that, that huge concentration in China... Um, what's happening is there are a number of companies that are really getting to scale uh, very quickly in terms of building up the manufacturing and, and putting in place the supply chain for, for electrification. Um, and I, I suspect that puts, um, that puts Chinese companies in a really strong position compared to some of the foreign manufacturers. Now, whether that means that we're all going to be driving Chinese cars in the future, I find that a little bit harder to see because I do think that you know, the US and European manufacturers have a chance to build up the same expertise that, you know, the similar scale, um, and they have, uh, you know, historical advantages relating to brand and, and so on. Um, but I think that for the moment, China is very much in the lead. With this move to electric, what are the oil companies? What's their future? Are they concerned about uh, this, you know, countries and companies moving away from their core product to something that is made by local utilities? The oil and gas companies are, are essentially on the two sides of the Atlantic. You're seeing two very different strategies from, from the oil and gas companies. Um, on the European side, um, companies like Shell and Total, uh, BP and so on, they're actually investing significant amounts of capital into what they're calling new energies, which is essentially power and, and renewables and electric vehicles. In the US, um, you know, your Exxon, your Chevron, they're taking a bit more of a wait and see attitude. Um, then they're not they're not necessarily throwing money at new energy just yet, although they are still putting money into R and D. Um, but it, it's really the European oil majors that have that have really bought into it. With that said, it's still a minor part of their business. So if you look at Shell, which is considered one of the leaders in this, they have an annual capex budget of somewhere around twenty five billion. They're putting about one to two billion of that into new energies. So it's it's you know far from capex being their capital expenditures that they basically invest in the future of their business. So it's, what, 124th? Okay. That's right. Um, so so that the rest of that capital expenditure will be going into things like um, exploration and production, refineries, and, and so on and so forth um, uh, in, their, in their traditional businesses. Um, but, you know, one, one to $2 billion of that is going into new energies. Um, and, and they seem to be serious about making this into a, into a real business that, um, you know, in, in the long run is supposed to generate returns. 
that we've seen this before. They get into renewables, they get out. You know, Chevron had a new energy venture is putting rooftop solar on schools, et cetera. A new CEO comes in, it gets sold. They don't really commit to the long term. Is this time any different? You know, one thing that's different, at least right now as we sit here, is that, um, you know, even with the, the recovery in oil prices since a few years ago, um, that doesn't seem to have dented the enthusiasm for investments in new energy. So that's one one small signpost that I think is worth taking note of. Um, I think the bigger question is whether the oil majors, and particularly the European ones who've been aggressive, is whether they can actually generate the kind of returns that they're used to seeing in their core business in their new energy businesses. Um, the power and utility space is is competitive. The margins are typically lower. Um, you, you know, oil and gas, especially the exploration and production um, part of the value chain, is a is a high risk and high reward business. Power and utilities is generally, you know, quite the opposite. Um, so I, I think the I think the big question is, um, you know, ca- can they ever get to a point where shareholders look at the power and utilities or the, the new energy part of the business and and see that as a as, as something that's really going to generate returns. Um, or is it always going to be a, a sort of two-speed business? Um, I think we're going to have to wait a few years to see that. Dieselgate was a big scandal in Europe and and the United States. What impact, lasting impact, did that have on the auto industry? VW pledged billions of dollars to uh, invest in electric cars or building out a, a charging uh, network in the United States as part of their uh, their penalty. Um, is that just going through the motions because they got busted, or is there real change in the auto industry that came out of Dieselgate? It wasn't just VW; lots of other automakers were implicated in faking their emissions reports. The diesel scandal really changed the balance of power in the auto industry. Um, like suddenly, the the political capital, um, particularly that the German automakers held, um, was really greatly diminished, and I think it's partly as a result of that that regulators and policymakers have been able to come back and, you know, not only issue fines and, you know, frankly, force VW to invest in charging infrastructure, um, but also to be more aggressive about their targets for vehicle electrification, um, for um, transportation emissions and so on. I I think that without the diesel scandal, um, we wouldn't have seen such concerted regulatory action, particularly um, in terms of the the emissions reduction piece. And that's where we're going to see the rubber hit the road um, when it comes to manufacturers really committing to EV manufacturing over the next few years. Other big events this year, both Uber and Lyft planning initial public offerings of stocks. Uh, We know here uh, in San Francisco that uh, Uber and Lyft have increased congestion and slowed down traffic times, and yet investors are valuing them at astronomical, you know, tens of billions of dollars for valuation. How are the IPOs of Uber and Lyft going to impact this new mobility market? I'm probably not going to comment on the IPOs in particular. Um, I think when it comes to new mobility services, um, there's a kind of techno-optimist view that autonomy and and sharing are going to solve congestion and solve local air pollution and, and, you know, solve, you you name name an urban problem, it's going to solve it. Um, I think we need to be really careful because we can see that, you know, Uber and Lyft increase the number of vehicles on the road. Um, we can see that they displace, you know, the, the types of journeys that they displace are not only car journeys, private car journeys. They also displace things like walking and they displace bus rides and, and, and tran- transit rides as well. Um, so I think we need to be really mm-hmm. careful to consider the impacts of these new technologies and make sure that they're harnessed in the right way. These services have the ability to um, reduce the cost of personal mobility 
um, and also increase access to mobility. So think of people who who maybe ha have mm -hmm. a disability and don't have the ability to drive, or for whatever reason um, are, are not car owners. Um, that there are clear clear benefits to these technologies in terms of cost, in terms of access, and so on. Um, and that's the bet that these investors are making, is that mobility can be opened up and, and, and made cheaper and more accessible. That doesn't mean that there won't be a tragedy of the commons, and I think that's what we're thinking about when it comes to congestion, when it comes to local air quality. Um, just because things get cheaper and better doesn't mean that all of the outcomes are going to be really good. Um, and I think from a sort of local city policy-making perspective, um, that's going to get a lot more scrutiny over the next few years. As we wrap up, you know, there's about a billion cars on the planet today. Projections are for about two billion cars, people living in, in larger, more dense cities. You know, what does that world look like with two billion cars? Is that a happy place? Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic at heart. I think I think I think the world can be a happy place. I'm I am actually, you know, despite um, you know uh, my, my warnings about you know policymakers need to be careful about the outcomes of these technologies. At, at the end of the day, I'm optimistic that technology can help solve a lot of the problems that we face. So when we think about climate change, um, you know, I look at the at, at the incredible um, improvements in technology and renewable energy and storage um, over the last few years and. It's very difficult to predict what the next thing will be that that you know that surprises us. But um, I I do think that if if there's one thing we're good at as as humans, it's kind of innovating and engineering new solutions to problems. Um, so I'm excited to see what the next years bring. Albert Chung is head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Coming up. I talked to the CEO of the Climate Group, Helen Clarkson, about getting some of the world's biggest companies to commit to renewable energy. If, as a company, you make a 90% commitment, everyone in the company then sort of thinks that they're probably in the 10%. So within the company, this 100% has this real signaling thing that, no, this is all of us. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One, Helen Clarkson is CEO of The Climate Group, which works to accelerate climate action by bringing together businesses and governments to shift global markets and policies. We began our conversation on a somewhat unlikely topic, the 2019 Super Bowl. One of the ads that caught attention was Budweiser with amber waves of grain and a horse-drawn wagon going through a field. And the point was... Renewable energy, Budweiser brewed with 100% renewable energy. That's part of the RE100 program that you're involved with. Tell us about why companies are doing that. Yeah, so the RE100 is a commitment by big corporations to 100% renewable electricity. Um, and they're doing that for lots of different reasons. We put out um, a report at the end of the last year, which sort of dug into some of those reasons. A lot of it is about climate leadership, but also it's about cost savings. It's about long-term um, understanding of where your electricity is coming from. And we're finding that... The key there is making this 100% commitment. If, as a company, you make a 90% commitment, that's great. It actually would be quite a good thing to do, but everyone in the company then sort of thinks that they're probably in the 10%. So within the company, this 100% has this real signaling thing that, no, this is all of us. You have to get the CEO to sign off or you're going to make a 100% commitment. So this starts then to drive innovation. And what we're seeing when we look at how our members are doing is that they are starting to innovate um, and actually hit a lot of their targets um, earlier. And I think this, you know, the, the ad that you saw, AB InBev, um, you know, the 
a big. Uh, that's the owner. Of that's Budweiser. the owner. So mm-hmm. Anheuser um, Busch InBev is a kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, they. Um, have the commitment um, and they realized they were looking at their energy mix and realized that um, they could credibly claim that um, Budweiser is powered by 100% uh, renewable energy. And I think they see that they're looking at can they use that to market to consumers and use it as a way to really tell the story about renewable electricity? Because I think a lot of renewable energy it can seem a bit kind of distant or people really, um, you know, don't understand or maybe don't like the idea of wind turbines or whatever and so but there you've got a really iconic american brand that's that's showing that you can do this it makes business sense and it's good for the planet and for their consumers as well so that comes together and i think you see that sort of advertising is pretty new and and exciting to see some of these companies pledge to go 100%, but they don't say when. Yeah. So time is critical here. So it's easy to say, yeah, I'm going to lose weight, but when, right? Yeah. So how important is when? During the tenure of the current CEO or someday? I, you know, when is really interesting. I think, as I say, the 100% bit is the bit that really drives the change. And I have to say, when I you know, joined as chief exec at the climate group, I was really, I was coming in and sort of, you know, you do a good poke around and whatever, what's happening. And I thought, why are some of these end dates quite far out? There are a couple of companies that they don't look very ambitious. Um, but actually, when you then get into this kind of signaling effect and what the 100% means, you realize that that's the bit that's critical because it does drive these changes in behavior and it sends this signal within the company. And I think it's really telling that within RE100, companies are meeting their goals much earlier than they thought they could. So actually, the, the critical bit is making this big commitment and then as a company looking and putting the, the, the pathway in place. And that starts to then get the company to look at the different cost drivers and the how and and that tends to drive the change earlier so we're not completely relaxed on the when but some of the dates are later than one would like but actually the companies are moving a bit faster some of them are using renewable energy credits which some people would say smoke and mirrors not really sure that that you know real change is happening it's kind of like buying an offset somewhere you're not really sure that it's additional that it's happening so you know are, are they really how confident are you that those doing it through renewable energy credits are actually creating new demand and new supply i think there's a couple of bits of that so we are really interested in the kind of quality and quantity you might sort of want, capture that in one way and and we're working with the members to move and make sure that we don't do the whole you know the whole 100% commitment through uh through rec through um certificates for the reasons that you you set out um but also because this has to be about new clean energy on the grid and and what we're more finding is that companies are doing uh doing new energy and then and using RECs to close the gap. And what we want over time is that, that the use of that will shrink and we will work with members to do it. So I think at the moment where we are in the energy transition, that's fine. And then as we move over time, we'll expect to see that shrinking down and, and the um, make sure that the amount of energy that comes onto the grid um, grows. As you say, demand is the key word. This is about an aggregated demand symbol, uh, signal. And if you add the energy demand of all the companies in RE100 together, you get demand the size of a country, the 23rd biggest country. So that starts to be a really important demand signal to the markets. Um, and that's the critical bit of this aggregated action. Um, and I think that we'll, we'll see then that getting the, the signal um, 
both to the utility providers, but also then we'll also see new sort of decentralized energy coming onto the grid as well. Cleaning up electricity is easier than some of the heavy industry airlines and shipping. Where are they in terms of moving towards cleaner sources of fuel? Airlines and shipping are thought to be kind of some of the last ones to to make the change. Yeah, and I've, I've seen some research that sort of shows as we move out towards 2050, those will be the kind of legacy sectors that are the last to move. We're not doing lots of work um, with them at the moment, but what's interesting is that one of our other campaigns, the EP100, um, is the a doubling of energy productivity. So we picked energy productivity as a measure. Um, it's, it's you know it's another way of looking at um, efficiency. It's about doubling. Um, the amount of economic output per unit of energy. And what we're finding um, with that is that heavy industry companies are joining up. So we have three or four really large cement companies in there who've made that commitment. And if you look at cement and, and the emissions, you've got sort of two sources there. You've got the the CO2 in the finished product and then the use of energy in the processing. And EP100 looks at that second block, which is the kind of easier to tackle bit. And so we're seeing the, the leading companies that are in those heavy industry sectors, they know they've got a license to operate issue. Um, and so they're starting to say, okay, look, we don't quite know yet. We've, we're doing the innovation. We're doing the work on figuring out how to sort out the CO2 in the finished product. But in the meantime, we will really make a commitment on energy efficiency. And I think that sort of model where they're tackling one portion of their emissions really, really seriously while they go away and do the innovation, which they just don't have a solution yet to that second piece. When you look at all these 2050 or 2070 models that come out, you can see that we've got to get right down and we'll probably be only left with, well, we need to only be left with aviation and, and cement in those models as being heavy emitting. Aviation, I think, is behind it's to do with the fuel density. And I saw something that said that, you know, yes, you could use... Uh, I think it was hydrogen or something to fly a plane, safety issues aside. But the weight of the fuel you would need to power a 747 would mean the only person on board would be the pilot. So <laughs> that's not really something that's feasible. So that's what the aviation sector is figuring out. And we're already starting to see electrification of you know short haul. I think that's started to become feasible. And so, again, innovation happening now. And I think that's what then pushes the urgency of things like RE100 where where we've got the solutions where there are things on the market we've got to be doing all of that as soon as possible because there's some really knotty challenges out there that's going to take a couple of decades to sort out. There's also EV electric vehicle 100 Bank America some other companies you know encouraging their employees to to adopt uh, electric vehicles the port of New York and New Jersey so tell us about you know uh, adoption trying to push EV adoption faster. Yeah, so EV100 um, has two aspects to the commitment. Again, it's a corporate commitment, um, both on the fleet and on the charging. And the fleet is both leased and owned, um, and the charging is infrastructure for staff and customers. Um, and the companies in there can make one of those commitments or all four. We have to work with them to see what makes sense. And, um, you know, the, if they've only got one site, they can't just pick charging and call it done. You know, it has to it has to make sense. Um, the biggest company in there is Lease Plan. They have 1.8 million vehicles. They're the biggest leasing company, and they're committed to all 1.8 million being um, EVs by 2030. So again, it's this, it's a it's a large demand. It's a demand signal on electric vehicles. Aggregated demand is the is the phrase. Um, you mentioned the Port of New York. What we did was last year, um, the Global Climate Action Summit in California uh, in September, we were looking at what are the big commitments that we can bring to that and how can we continue to, to push more companies to commit and others. 
Um, and so we worked with C40 Cities. They had something called the Green and Healthy Streets um, Commitment, which is about electric buses. Um, and then we are also secretariat for something called the Under Two Coalition, which is state and regional governments. And we went to them and said, look, let's make a, a commitment that mirrors EV100. So what we did was pull all of those three things together to show for the summit in California, this large aggregated demand signal from states, cities, businesses, regions, and over 60 committed in the run-up. And so what we had was um, an ability on stage to talk directly to the automotive industry and say, look, the demand is here. We need to be moving much, much more quickly. Um, and Mayor Garcetti stood on stage and said, you know, if you buy, make mayor them. Of Angeles, mayor of Los Angeles. Mayor of Los Angeles, yeah. If you make them, we will buy them, which is, that's the point, is to say, we're going to use our procurement power. We've got purchasing power. There is demand. Come on. And, you know, for the climate group as a nonprofit, our mission's all about accelerating climate action. This is what we want to do. These markets are moving already, but it's really about accelerating and moving the pace on. Is Paris still relevant for companies now that the U.S. is out and there's some companies are sagging off their commitments? Is Paris, is the heat off? Not at all. So the interesting thing is that the U.S. isn't technically out yet. It's, but the symbolism it's out of the door. It's got its one elbow out the door. I think that what we saw in the run-up to that announcement was a lot of companies who'd, who were doing interesting things on climate but didn't like to talk about it very much actually coming out and saying, first of all, saying to the president, please don't do this. What we want is certainty in the market. And Paris gives us certainty. It sets the direction. We know what's, um, you know where we're going. And it might be a bit inconvenient because there's going to be some additional costs, but at least we're all facing the same thing. So that level playing field. And so post the announcement of the pullout, um, we saw the we're still in coalition and we're growing. And it's over, I think, 2,000 members now. So it's a huge movement. And I think businesses, because they think, a lot of the, these businesses think globally. So for the big sort of the Fortune 500 or whatever that we work with, they're looking globally. And for the rest of the world, Paris is still alive and well. And it, it is interesting that the US, you know, they still turn up at the COP each year. The uh, UN Climate the Summit. The UN Climate Summit, mm. yeah. Uh, and and as I said, it, it technically not out yet. The... Um, November 20... The day after the next presidential yeah, election that's is right. when the U.S. can formally leave. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, but so far, we haven't seen companies slacking off as a result. I think what's going to be interesting is um, if that does if that does happen, if there isn't a change of heart, or another reason why the U.S. Um, stays in is... is how does that combine with the election you know, of the new Brazilian president? It's, it's actually probably worse for Paris, I'd say, at the moment than the US dropping out because of the Amazon rainforest being such a critical part of delivering a 1.5 degree C pathway. pathway. You need, we need the Amazon rainforest there. So actually at the moment, I'm more worried about that than, than the US. All the climate, a lot of the climate conversations is up in our heads and I now ask people to sort of at the heart level questions. There's a lot of people who talk about working in climate sometimes talk about um, the hope police or the idea that we have to say, you're supposed to say you're optimistic even if you're not because that's what sells people don't mm. want to do in despair. So I wonder how you wrestle with that in terms of keeping yourself optimistic even when the, you look at the data and it's pretty dark. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I remember saying at work once, well, of course, I mean, none of us could come in in the morning if we weren't optimistic. And then a colleague I respect a lot said, oh, no, I managed to come. I'm not very, but I managed to come in. You know, so I think different people <laughs> respond to different things. Yeah. And I sort of, yeah, I lean towards the optimism. I think 
Yeah, at the moment things feel pretty bleak, but I think tipping points can come quickly. And I think that we're just seeing the conversation change now with what's happening in Australia, what happened, you know, the summer that they're having right now. Australia's, That's, you know, massive rains, uh, storms, as well as scorching heat. I mean, they've had yeah. something. I was listening to a story the other day about this sort of wipeouts of fish, um, you know, mass kills, they call them, because the temperature was reaching over 47 centigrade. I don't know that was 112, over 110 Fahrenheit. Yeah. yeah, every day. And they said they'd normally get two days like that in the summer, and there'd been two weeks solidly like that. So, and Australia has been one of these countries, a bit like Canada, which really f- kind of flip-flops around on climate. Um, but you can see public opinion there really, really changing. Um, and I think those of us who've been working on this a long time were hoping we wouldn't get to this stage before people really realised that we had a point you know um but humans are a bit like that but i think that you know we do have a lot of the technologies it is about deployment it is about getting things to scale it's about really being ambitious about that pace um and i think as we see more of these things and that is going to help move move things into public consciousness look we've also got um kids coming up that putting on a lot of pressure upwards yes you know a 16 year old uh, protesting she she hasn't you know this this uh, amazing girl from Sweden Greta Thunberg uh-huh. um she's kicked off a lot of strikes in Sweden there are similar strikes happening from students they're not going to school in Belgium that sort of youth movement I think is interesting and it's easy to be cynical and think yeah but they're not in the boardrooms but you know they're the kids of people who are in, in boardrooms and I think they are really getting that message out there that you know we are squandering their future and that seems to be gaining some traction and I think last year we saw how quickly some, some messages have been given for a long time can drop so I'm talking about plastics where you just saw this shift it's been going on a long time in the environmental movement about plastic 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 and trying to get the message home and then we saw this tipping point particularly with you know the big David Attenborough documentary which which went around the world images social media was very helpful that image of the uh, i think it was a turtle with a straw and suddenly people thinking what can i do about it oh we have all these solutions so i think we're ready for similar things to move on climate and i think the next maybe five years are going to feel quite messy but i think we're then going to start to see real tipping points yeah the whole plastic paper straw thing happened very quickly perhaps a trivial example but it flipped pretty quickly culturally that cultural change yeah and i think once people start to see that you can make changes um on that where um oh my life didn't get worse despite you know this sort of idea that well i'm going to adopt green practices and it's like wearing a hair shirt oh this was quite easy to do you know i i'm hopeful that that sort of Look, another one is electric vehicles they are more expensive at the moment um but you know within say ev100 lease plan is huge leasing companies is is pushing them out so people are starting to drive them a bit more and, and certain companies are giving incentives for their employees to use them people who use evs who like cars like driving them better they have more sexy it's more fun they're faster and torque better apparently is the word torque. i think that's something torque, to do with yeah, getting just, out of a traffic life quickly isn't it just, i don't know like I'm acceleration or thrill it's thrill <laughs> so, so the, let's call it the thrill so people who drive them really really like them you know it's amazing you never have to go and you know hardly have to go and refuel if you've got hybrid um the maintenance costs are much much lower so as people start to use these things and see oh this isn't a kind of you know hair shirt and lentils agenda it's exciting cleaner ways of doing things and i think the other thing that's really hitting now is 
air pollution um people are really just experiencing that in day-to-day lives and we're seeing you know i, I come from london and the, the air quality there is, is really bad we've got an office in uh, we have two offices one in delhi and beijing and there's you know weeks where staff can barely come to work or you know having illnesses because of the air quality and you know i think people are starting to realize that there's this isn't a corporate social responsibility thing it's actually about creating a better future and, that, and that's really hitting home i think Ellen Clarkson, CEO of the Climate Group, speaking with me at the recent Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference on the future of personal mobility. You can subscribe to Climate One wherever you get your podcasts. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.